I'm going to expose myself as a complete nerd right now, um, but working at the State Department was uh, an aspiration I had since childhood. This is Josh Paul. Until recently, he worked in the U.S. State Department. His job for more than a decade was to help manage the transfer of weapons to foreign governments. From one day to the next, you could be working on Ukraine, then Taiwan, then Saudi Arabia, uh, then something in Latin America. I think there aren't a lot of places in government uh, where you can actually feel that you have a tangible impact. Uh, But this is one of them. Josh's work was always morally complex. But at the State Department, he says that there was open discussion about when and why weapons were given to foreign powers. In the arms transfer business, you can't start, as doctors do, from the premise of do no harm. You have to start with do as little harm as possible. Uh, and sometimes it is not possible to, to even do little harm. Sometimes there is great harm. And so the United States has relationships with a lot of countries with dubious human rights records, autocratic systems of government. And yet we provide security assistance. We provide arms um, for them to defend themselves, to conduct operations such as counterterrorism operations. Um, And in each of these, uh, I and several others uh, within the department would raise issues and concerns. Uh, You know, what is going to be the impact of these bombs? How are they going to be used? Are they going to result in civilian harm? Questions like these were top of mind for Josh since October 7th, when Hamas killed about 1,200 people in Israel and took 250 people hostage, and since Israel began its intense military campaign in Gaza. The U.S. is the biggest supplier of military equipment to Israel. And as Josh saw how those weapons were being used and how the death toll in Gaza began rising into the thousands, he started sounding the alarm. There had always previously been some space for discussion, uh, for pushback, for raising those concerns. What had changed uh, after October 7th was that that space disappeared. There were multiple requests coming in from the government of Israel uh, and direction from the very top levels of the State Department and the White House to say yes to everything as quickly as possible uh, without the sort of debate that would normally occur or where there were questions raised uh, to escalate them incredibly quickly and you know, find them dismissed uh, with the direction to move forward. The space for me to do good was simply not there. There was only the space to do harm. Soon after October 7th, Josh Paul resigned. He was the first high-level official from the Biden administration to quit over America's policy in Israel. Since then, congressional aides and White House staff members have been outspoken in calling for President Biden to reverse course. Last week, Biden delivered a surprisingly sharp remark against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, has been um, over the top. But the president has not signaled a change in U.S. policy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 13th. Today, we hear why Josh Paul and others within the Biden administration have resigned over the U.S. government's approach toward the war in Gaza. Then, I talk with Yasmin Abu Talib, who covers the White House for The Post. She explains why Biden has resisted pushing back on Israel and why that might be changing now. Josh Paul spoke to my colleague, Arjun Singh. Before the war in Gaza, 
Had you ever worked on arms deals with Israel specifically? And if so, how did you feel about those agreements before what we are seeing in Gaza right now? Yes, the Bureau has a global reach. Uh, and of course, part of that uh, is Israel. Of course, Israel is, you know, accepting Ukraine in recent years, our most significant recipient of U.S. military grant assistance. I was part of many discussions uh, about Israeli human rights practices, um, about potential violations of human rights, and also more broadly about arms transfers to Israel. I will say that, you know, my position is not one against all arms transfers to Israel. Uh, I think countries do have the right to defend themselves. I think citizens of any country do have the right to live without rocket fire. So, for example, I'm fully supportive of the Iron Dome uh, system and other measures to protect Israeli civilians. I think we need to think equally about the protection of Palestinian civilians. Uh, and that is why I'm concerned about our transfer of lethal arms uh, to Israel in the context of Gaza. So then what was the moment when you thought to yourself, I'm doing more harm than good? And and tell us how you kind of got to that point of feeling that you needed to resign. Yeah, it wasn't a snap decision. I actually drafted my resignation statement slowly over the course of a week uh, in the post-October 7th context in which bombs were raining down on Gaza. Uh, by the time I resigned, about 10 days uh, later, uh, there were already over 2,500 Palestinians who had been killed in Gaza. Uh, and yet there was no willingness, uh, of course, to revisit some of our decisions or to slow down the process, uh, rather just this sort of rush to provide the arms that we knew uh, were going to lead to massive civilian casualties. So my reasons for resignation were, first of all, that I don't believe U.S. arms should be used to kill thousands of civilians. I don't think anyone believes that. I don't think anyone goes into government to facilitate that. This all comes on top of a policy process that is broken. Uh, you know, the intent of our security assistance to Israel for certainly the last couple of decades uh, has been that with security, Israel will feel capable of making the concessions to the Palestinians needed for peace. Uh, but rather, Israel has taken that security and essentially uh, made itself not have to worry about uh, what steps it is taking about the Palestinians. Uh, you know, it has enabled it to expand settlements in the West Bank uh, to continue the siege of Gaza. And so this is a policy that is not working in the way that it is intended. But I think had there been some space for debate, it's possible that I would still be doing the job. Do you have a sense of what was the source of that unwillingness and how was it unprecedented? How was it unique from your prior 11 years at the State Department, specific to Israel? So in terms of the source of that unwillingness, I, I think it takes several forms. One of them is, is you know, to be fair, uh, the emotional reaction to October 7th and the horrific attacks that were conducted on that date. Uh, I think that is entirely fair at a human level uh, to feel absolutely horrified and to respond to that horror uh, with a sort of passionate urge to do everything that is possible to defeat it. The problem is it is not the job of the United States as a government uh, to respond with emotion. It is our responsibility as civil servants to respond uh, with rational analysis of the situation and an understanding of, you know, what is going to be the consequences of our actions and are they actually in our interest. There is also, of course, a, a long track record here of the U.S. being unwilling to question uh, Israel's actions. And that, that unwillingness is baked into the bureaucracy to some level, where I think at the working level, people are willing to raise these issues. But as soon as you get to sort of the more political levels uh, within the department, or certainly in Congress, uh, people are just not willing to touch these issues, are not willing to raise these concerns, because they see it as career suicide. What result were you hoping from your resignation? Did you think it would have an impact? Or was it a more personal decision for you? So I think there were two results I was hoping for. Uh, one of them I have achieved, one of them I certainly not. The, the result uh, I, I have achieved is that I did not want to be a part of this, uh, and I've not been a part of it. 
you know, I think the question is how effectively, right? Uh, there has not been a change in U.S. policy, I'm disappointed to say. I don't know that it would have been fair for me to expect one. Uh, but to be fair, there has been a change, I think, in the U.S. public debate in on this issue. Um, and to the extent that I've contributed to creating the space for that debate, uh, certainly, I think, uh, coming out of the State Department and certainly, frankly, uh, being a white middle-aged male, uh, I think that there has been uh, some success, at least, and some impact of my resignation. Do you find yourself to be an outlier? Were there others within the State Department who felt the same way as you, Josh? Uh, No, I'm not an outlier. Um, What I've learned since leaving is that I was actually part of probably a majority, um, that there are hundreds of people I'm in touch with within the U.S. government now uh, who represent, I think, the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of how people feel about this issue. And I think it's particularly obvious when you talk to people who have worked on Middle East issues, when you talk to people who have served for the U.S. Uh, in Israel, in the West Bank, um, who, who understand the reality on the ground and the impact that the current U.S. approach is having on our relations across the Middle East uh, and across the global south. When Josh resigned in October, the death toll in Gaza was 2,500. By the first week of January, the death toll had climbed to more than 22,000. And there was a second public resignation, this time from a Biden political appointee inside the Department of Education. My name is Tark Havash. I recently resigned from the Biden administration, from the Department of Education, where I was a policy advisor working on racial equity, higher education, and student loan issues. Tarek says that he worked for the Biden administration and before that for the Biden campaign because he believed in the value of education and he saw a chance to make change. I was born and raised in the United States. You know, I'm a Palestinian-American. But the reality is that I also grew up hearing stories about how my family was forcibly displaced in 1948. My aunts and uncles, my grandparents lost everything they had. And I was always reminded that, you know, you can lose your possessions, your home can be taken from you, but the thing that cannot be taken from you is your identity and your education, the things that you learn, those things, you know, will always be with you. And for me, that was something that, you know, I I carried very, very deeply in my heart, in my mind, every single day when I was at the Department of Education. Tarek believed the administration shared his values until the start of the war in Gaza. It did feel as a Palestinian-American that, you know, there was only room for the emotion and the empathy for one group of people and not for everyone who was suffering. And what we saw in the aftermath is the constant dehumanization of Palestinians, the constant massacring and collective punishment of millions of Palestinians in Gaza that is really being essentially enabled by our current government's policies every single day. And when you're in the government and you are part of that, you feel responsible to a degree for what's happening, despite the fact that I was working in education and not on foreign policy issues, of course. But, you know, I felt an obligation to bring humanity to the issue uh, from the side of Palestinians. And 
you know, there are even opportunities to communicate with the White House about this. The White House did do listening sessions and I appreciated the opportunity to express myself. I think my peers also felt the same, but I think that, you know, where it fell short was it felt to an extent like a box checking exercise, like lip service that, you know, we want to hear from you we want to make sure you're okay, but we have no intention of actually addressing the 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 root cause of what's creating the circumstances by which like you feel this way. So then ultimately, how did you end up deciding that you needed to resign? I mean, for me, it was a culmination of things. There wasn't like a moment in time or a snapshot where I said, you know, this is this is where I'm doing this. I mean, I think like in the first week of everything happening and just feeling so raw and feeling like a zombie walking through the halls of the building. And I just remember having a conversation with my boss and just completely breaking down. And it was extremely hard after just an entire week of constant dehumanizing language from the White House, you know, effectively just reminding me of like growing up as an Arab in Southwest Ohio, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, having nothing to do with anything and just being constantly bullied as like, essentially like, oh, this is, this is your fault and having everything taken out on you. And the reality that like those emotions resurfaced and resurfaced because of the language that was coming from my own employer, from like the government that I worked so hard to support and represent. It was just, it was so hard to bear. And I think that was the first moment I may have even like contemplated, like, I don't know if I can be here. It was just getting to the point where I realized that they didn't want to listen to their own staff, you know, despite dozens of dissent cables from the State Department and letters from USAID and hundreds of anonymous staffers signing letters that raised real concerns about the administration's policies. There was never really a shift. There still hasn't really been a shift in the policy and... I wrote a resignation letter that I eventually published. And at one point I say, I cannot represent an administration that does not value all human life equally. I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives in what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government. Do you think your resignation had an impact? I hope so. I think a few weeks down the road, like I've heard from so many people, it makes me have a sense of hope about the the possibility that we could still change course. And obviously, like I'm not hearing from the people who are making the decisions on this, but at the end of the day, I really do feel hopeful that so many Americans agree kind of with where I am on this particular issue in this moment. Yeah, as best as you can tell, what is your sense of how widespread this dissent is, specifically within the the ranks of people who work for the Biden administration? I mean, it feels fairly significant. I mean, this is not going away 
if anything, I think it's escalating and the level of dissent and consternation within the staff ranks are real and serious. And I think it's a it's a signal to the administration. I think it's a signal to the campaign that, you know, you are losing your base. You're losing the people who believed in you for so long and fought every single day to enact your agenda because of this issue. Tarek, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks so much. After the break, we speak with post-White House reporter Yasmin Abutalib about Biden's emotional attachment to Israel and how that's being tested. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Yasmin, we just heard from Tara Kabash and Josh Paul, two government officials who have resigned over the Biden administration's policy on Israel. How widespread is this kind of frustration? It's pretty widespread. I think it's important to make a distinction between Biden's senior aides, the people in his inner circle who are in discussions with him driving the policy, and then the broader administration, which is thousands of people. So you have a lot of people, when you're talking more broadly about the administration, who are pretty dismayed with the Biden administration's policy on Israel, who have wanted them to long call for a ceasefire, who have been extremely uncomfortable and upset with unwavering U.S. support of Israel. But I think if we're talking about Biden's senior aides, the people who have his ear and his circle, that is not making it up to those levels. So when it comes to the dissent from that wider wider circle of people who are um, in other parts of the administration, um, what are some of the examples we've seen of this dissent bubbling up and becoming public? It's kind of remarkable. We've had countless examples at this point. There have been a number of letters 
um, at the State Department, at USAID, calling on the administration to seek a ceasefire, to publicly call for a ceasefire and pressure Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza. There have been a number of these anonymous letters and anonymous protests where staffers are protesting outside the White House. We are congressional staffers on Capitol Hill, and we are no longer comfortable being silent. Their faces are covered, so you don't know exactly who it is, but the point is to show up in wide numbers. Our constituents are pleading for a ceasefire, and we are the staffers answering their calls every day. I want to talk for a second about the Senate, where there have been several measures brought forward to try to push back against how the Biden administration is approaching this. Can you talk about who in the Senate is leading this charge and what they are actually proposing? It's It's been pretty interesting to see how much the politics of Israel have changed in Congress, because before October 7th, I think you would be pretty hard-pressed to find especially in the Senate, any senator, Republican or Democrat, who would be willing to criticize Israel in any significant way, let alone to talk about conditioning aid to Israel. This was just anathema to U.S. lawmakers um, and would have been an enormously unpopular position. But you have a pretty big contingent of Senate Democrats who have now signed on to a measured conditioning aid to Israel. So Senator Chris Van Hollen has been leading the charge on this, which would basically be a provision that... uh, Israel and any nation receiving U.S. assistance has to abide by international humanitarian law. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a measure that only garnered 11 votes um, that would basically require State Department to conduct an assessment or a report looking at whether Israel has abided by international law in carrying out its military campaign or whether there have been violations. This is a tragedy in which we... United States of America are complicit. Much of what is happening, much of the bombardment and the other actions that we are seeing now is happening right now with U.S. arms and equipment. In other words, whether we like it or not, the United States is complicit in the nightmare that millions of Palestinians are now experiencing. And has anything resulted from this pushback in the Senate? It has. So Biden last week issued what's called the National Security Memorandum. And basically what it does, it doesn't really do anything new, but enforces a set of standards that the U.S. already has, that recipients of U.S. aid and weapons have to abide by international law and that they can't basically block the delivery of humanitarian aid. The White House said they don't think any country receiving weapons or aid right now is in violation of this or else they wouldn't be receiving it. The one new thing that this memorandum does, which comes back to the Sanders proposal, is it would require the State Department to issue a report every year about whether countries are in compliance with this. And then if they find that a country is not in compliance, some action could be taken against them. So the result of this is that Senator Chris Van Hollen, who introduced the amendment that would effectively condition aid, did not end up putting it on the floor when the Senate voted on the supplemental bill because the White House issued this memorandum that basically did the same thing. My understanding is that 
up until pretty recently, Biden has been very firm in his conviction of the importance of standing by Israel um, and not pushing back publicly against um, Israeli actions here. Can you unpack that a little bit um, and how Biden has been approaching this war up until recently? Biden has this visceral attachment to the state of Israel, and he has for pretty much his entire political career, which has spanned more than 50 years. And so he is very much of this mindset that there should be no public daylight between the U.S. and Israel. He came up in politics at a very different time where support for Israel was was pretty uniform. There was really no controversy in having unwavering support, and now it's changed pretty dramatically among his own party and among a key coalition of his party. Well, so tell me more about that. Like, what was going on when Biden was coming up in politics between the U.S. and Israel that has so profoundly, like, shaped his commitment to this country? Well, Biden is 81, so he was alive for the creation of Israel. But more than that, he, in all of his speeches about Israel, it's sort of a running joke. He talks about when he met the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, who was an extremely different, this was in 1973, extremely different prime minister than Netanyahu, who was oversees the most right-wing government in Israel's history. So in Biden's mind, Israel is this new fledgling democracy that's like fighting for its survival in the Middle East with a bunch of hostile neighbors. He doesn't see what I think the a younger generation of Americans sees now, that they are a military powerhouse in the region that has um, oppressed Palestinians, you know, massively expanded settlements in the West Bank. Um, so there's just this big generational divide in the way that Biden sees Israel and believes the U.S. role should be there and the way the younger generation is seeing them now. I'd be curious to hear more about specifically his relationship with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Like, they do seem to be very close, and that seems to be a part of why Biden hasn't wavered in that support. It's a complicated relationship. Um, U.S. officials find Netanyahu extremely frustrating. He has been in Israeli politics for a long time. He's a very savvy political operator. But he has often sort of humiliated U.S. presidents um, kind of shamelessly. Like like when? So when Biden was vice president, he was visiting Israel in 2010. And right before he visited, Netanyahu announced a new round of Israeli settlements, which put the U.S. in an incredibly difficult position of does Biden still go, even though he made this announcement that is counter to U.S. policy. So that was kind of a poke in the eye uh, right before Biden went. He did decide to still go. Um, And then recently, despite how much Biden has sacrificed domestically for his support of Israel, Bibi is now almost campaigning against Biden for his own political survival. So, Wait, what, what do you mean by that? What we're now seeing is Netanyahu trying to cling to power, which is very tenuous in Israel. He's enormously unpopular. Before all this, he was facing corruption charges. He was pushing through this highly unpopular judicial reform. Um, And now there are these questions about his longevity. How long is he going to be in office? But it seems that he is using this tactic because Biden and the U.S. have been so public in saying, after the war is over, we need to move towards a two-state solution Bibi has become much more defiant in recent weeks in saying, well, I've prevented the creation of a Palestinian state for decades, and basically it's just me standing between the creation of a Palestinian state, because if the U.S. got its way, this is what they would do. Mm -hmm. And he has kind of directly insulted Biden in recent weeks, despite 
how much Biden has supported Israel. But despite all that, Bibi has, you know, not really hesitated to make very clear he wants Trump to return to power and that that would be a better government for him to work with um, and to say, you know, to make very clear he has absolutely no intention of providing a pathway or any sort of steps towards a Palestinian state. So it sounds like the relationship between Biden and Netanyahu has gotten uh, a lot more complicated after this history of being very close. And we're seeing this on the Biden side, too. I know that in the last week, he has been more critical of Israel than he has been up to this point in the conflict. Can you talk a little bit about what Biden has said and how significant were those comments? So there's definitely been a rhetorical shift when we're talking about the president. He, last week, in response to a question, he sort of volunteered this, said that he believed Israel's military campaign in Gaza had been, quote, over the top, which was a pretty striking turnaround for him because he has been very careful not to really criticize Israel in public. His aides told us that he has long felt this in private and been very frustrated, but he's been extremely careful to not voice this in public. And then the president, while he was delivering remarks after meeting with the King of Jordan earlier this week, said that he opposed an Israeli military operation in Rafah, which is the southern city in Gaza that borders Egypt, where more than a million Palestinians are crammed in, in pretty decrepit conditions right now. It's a tiny town that has swollen to more than four times its original size. He said he opposed that unless Israel came up with a plan to protect civilians. But I think the thing that everyone is looking for here is whether he's willing to back up that rhetoric with action. And so far, the White House has made pretty clear they're not looking at actions like conditioning or restricting aid or even threatening to, um, or that there would be any real consequence for Israel moving ahead against their wishes. That is so interesting because I feel like it speaks to what a lot of these dissenting administration officials have brought up is that, yes, there has been this strategy for years that the best way for the U.S. to influence Israel is to show immense solidarity in public and then maybe in private take Netanyahu aside and say, look, it would be nice if you considered this. Look, you know, we're here with you, but um, there are a few things that we're taking issue with. But it doesn't seem like that is getting the U.S. anywhere or that when it comes to like this issue of the two-state solution, which the U.S. is clearly in favor of, that that's not something that Israel is open to negotiation on or that Netanyahu is open to negotiation on. So it's like, what what is the U.S. getting out of this um, by showing all the support if Netanyahu just sort of turns around and is like, we're going to do what we want anyway? I think, Martine, that's exactly the question that a lot of people are pressing the administration on right now. There was, like you said, this thought early on that you basically hug Israel and you don't air your public disagreements. You do them in private, but you maintain public support so that you can still influence them in private. And I think in the first weeks of the war, they felt maybe they were getting something for that, you know, getting them to allow very limited amounts of aid and, you know, maybe not sending in all the troops that they were initially planning to. I think one of the things that they are especially proud of is Israel had received some faulty intelligence in the days after October 7th that an attack from Hezbollah um, in Lebanon on their northern border was imminent and they wanted to attack and the U.S. dissuaded them from that. So they felt they prevented this massive escalation of the war in the early days. But I think as time has gone on, there have been these questions of, like, what are you getting for this bear hug strategy? You said that at the end of all of this, you were going to push them to get to a two-state solution. 
I spoke with a senior administration official back in November who, who noted that Biden was so popular in Israel, he was so much more popular than Netanyahu, and that you know, there was this question of when do you drain all the goodwill that you've built? Do you do it in calling for a ceasefire or you, do you do it on this longer term thing of a two-state solution? And they were like, when it comes to the two-state solution question, that's when we're going to start to really use all the goodwill we've built. But obviously that's not working now because Netanyahu really could not be any clearer in saying he is absolutely not going to let this happen in any way, shape or form. So, Yasmin, what are your questions that you're going to be asking about this as this all continues to unfold? Well, most immediately is U.S. officials are working around the clock to try to secure a deal that would see the release of many of the remaining Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and a long-term pause in the fighting. U.S. officials say that that could also lay the groundwork for a number of things that they need to do. They could surge humanitarian aid into Gaza. They could start to lay the groundwork for a more permanent ceasefire. So that's really where the focus is right now. So we know that um, Biden's top aides, including CIA Director Bill Burns, are in Cairo today trying to negotiate negotiate this deal. There are still some pretty big gaps between Israel and Hamas, but U.S. officials say they feel the framework is there and they can get there. I think the bigger question is, how willing are the two sides to come to this agreement? Netanyahu's facing a lot of pressure from right-wing cabinet ministers and his government not to take this deal because they don't want to pause in the fighting. They don't want to release Palestinian prisoners. So U.S. officials feel they can get there, but I think there are still some pretty big challenges to overcome. And securing this deal is is pretty key to all of the diplomatic um, and humanitarian issues U.S. officials want to address in the coming weeks. Yasmin, thank you so much. Thank you. Yasmin Abu Talib is a White House reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Peter Bresnan. It was edited by Monica Campbell. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Thank you to Rennie Svarnovsky and Arjun Singh. And if you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.